Aaron and I want to start with a really big, heartfelt first bite thank you. We have been so encouraged by your kind word, your messages, your glowing reviews of First Bite. This has been a labor of love for the last year and a half, and we we are grateful for y'all being on the First Bite journey with us and supporting us because we I mean, we work full time and this is this is a full time gig on top of it. And we do it with joy because we understand that the world of early intervention pediatrics needs evidence in it. So we sweet talked the folks with speechtherapypd.com. And as a thank you giveaway, we have come up with a, a, a free pod course subscription. So once we hit 130 iTunes written reviews, we're going to pull another name out of the hat, probably with the assistance of an ever so handsome goose and a bear. And that person will get a free PodCore subscription. So over 175 hours of continuing ed plus 19 new continuing hours each month. And there's a new episode every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, every other Thursday, and the short course, nine series long, all things ethics with Elise. And that's our way of giving back. So thank you. So please keep the reviews coming. We only have a few more to go, but once we hit 130, then we will pull that name out of a hat. Happy 2020. Thank you for joining us on the journey. And Seriously, y'all rock. Thank you. Hey, so by now, I'm hoping that you've heard about the brand new PodCore subscription that Speech Therapy PD has rolled out. For $79 a month, you get over 175 hours of ASHA continuing education with 19 new episodes a month. That's fantastic. Well, they want to make sure that you also know we have a brand new coupon code. So the coupon code is F as in first, B as in bite, followed by the number 20, FB20. And that brand new coupon code will give you $20 off the PodCore subscription. So you get 175 hours of continuing ed plus an average of 19 new hours a month, all for $59 a year. And we cover everything from early intervention to schools to adults to ethics. So be sure to type in F as in first, B as in bite, and then the number's 20. Enjoy your coupon, or as my kin folks say, enjoy that coupon. Hi folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional a speech therapy podcast sponsored by speechtherapypd.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina and a guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts. To break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy, joy and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. 
So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. So today's episode falls in the fun and functional categories, and I'm pretty excited because today is honestly on a highly controversial topic, BCBAs and SLPs. But here's the catch. It doesn't have to be controversial. When interprofessional practice is done right, BCBAs and SLPs can work collaboratively to see a patient with autism spectrum disorders set for success. So let me preface this entire episode with a few words of wisdom. One, actively listen to the child's team, all members involved, as each one brings a unique background and education and invaluable um, resources and experiences. Two, recognize and respect each other's scope of practices and licenses. And if necessary, be prepared to defend yours. But hopefully if tip number one is done correctly, then you won't have to defend yours as open communication will have already happened. Number three, listen to the patient and remember that we are to utilize patient-centered care. The Aspergian, it's um, a great online resource. And in um, articles over the last couple of years, they have shared that for some individuals diagnosed with autism spectrum disorders, they felt that both speech therapy and ABA therapy amounted to torture when they were going through it. So we need to read the room, maybe literally, maybe not literally, and recognize that we're there to help and not to hurt. Okay. So on that note, um, with those three tips of wisdom fresh in your mind, let me tell you some two very drastic real experiences about interacting with two very different BCBAs for two very different kiddos. So a couple of years ago, I'll tell you, I'll tell I'll tell you my bad story first, and then we'll switch to the good story. So one of the worst possible experiences I've ever had with a licensed BCBA here in Cola Town. Um, several years ago, I was working with a family in their home, and. Uh, I recommended that the child be evaluated because the little one was presenting with signs and symptoms of um, autism spectrum disorders, and they did. Uh, he did get the diagnosis, and I recommended that they start ABA therapy in conjunction with. We had just started a low-tech speech-generating device while we were trying to get a high-tech um, a low t- We started with a, a non-speech-generating device, and we were, we were trying to get the high-tech one involved. And... The BCBA came in and she took over everything, got in my face, pointed her finger at me and told me in front of the child's mother that I needed to step back and know my role. And I, she was like, honestly, like a foot taller than me. And um, you don't put your finger in an Irish woman's face. And so I politely said, you and I need to step outside, ma'am. And then I read her the riot act. Uh, and it was appropriately needed. And then we went back inside and she changed her tune and started working more collaboratively. But she wanted to, quote unquote, run the show because it was all behaviors and had nothing to do with language. It was terrible. A kid did not make the progress that he needed to because no matter how hard we tried, including getting um, managerial team on her end involved, we could not build a bridge to see this kid for success. All right. So next case, um, I am called out to be like the fourth SLP for this kiddo. And I have no idea what I'm going to bring to the table. That's different. He's five. He's had all these great SLPs before me, uh, but nobody had tried a high tech speech generating device. And the kiddo was, um, mostly nonverbal, right? So I came out and there was a line therapist there and the line therapist goes, oh my stars, we didn't know that there was a new SLP coming. And I was like, well, I didn't know the kiddo had ABA. So good, good for us. And she goes, I need to call his BCBA right away. All right. Stomach and knots already, already I'm braced for the battle. That is how I met the one and only amazing Sarah Pound. And Sarah was like, I didn't know that there was a new SLP. We have got to get the whole team together. I will, I will get a meeting set and we will all be there for your speech therapy session next week. I was like, I'm sorry, what? Completely caught off guard. What I didn't know 
is that this amazing BCBA was, she has, um, she's married, she has a wife and her wife happens to be a pediatric SLP. And what a difference it was because she knew more than most the value that SLPs and BCBAs can bring to the table when working collaboratively. That kiddo made the most progress I've ever seen ever. We had multiple meetings with every lead line therapist that graced that kid's doorstep. And the kid made tremendous progress because we worked collaboratively, picking vocabulary, collaboratively helping him reach his different goals. And it was beautiful. What a stark contrast between the two, right? So now that I've set the stage, I want to introduce today's amazing guest, Sari. And I'm going to butcher it, woman, and I'm trying really hard not to have my twang butcher it. But Sari Risen, MA, CCC, SLP, registered with CalSPO, BCBA. And I met this woman in the most fabulous way by liking her contributions on several different EI Facebook pages. Her commentary and her suggestions were thoughtful, they supported evidence-based practice, and they were kind. And in a world where kindness is in short supply, it was inspiring. She reached out to me and I thought, yes, yes, I'm now ready to address the role of BCBAs and SLPs. And honestly, it took me a minute to be okay to even talk about this topic. I mean, like we're like 100 episodes in, but that's because of how badly I've been burned before. But we're here so, Sari, thank you so much for coming on. And please tell me I said your name right. You did. Perfect. Yay. I've been trying. Okay. So, y'all, also, she's our first guest that's not in the continental United States. She's in Toronto. I mean, I know it's like literally like just on the other side of the line, but I'm feeling very worldly and cultured here. Um Okay. So hi, welcome. Thank you for coming. Thank you for reaching out. I have so many questions, but like some of them are super technical, but like, how did you become an SLP? Did you do BCBA first? Did you do like, tell me your story. Okay, great. Um, so in high school and undergrad, um, I knew I wanted to go into healthcare. So I worked a lot with kids with, um, special needs, mostly, um, individuals with neurodevelopmental disorders. Um, and in doing so, like in my camp counselor jobs where I did that and working as a rec therapist, I love the part, rec therapist assistant, I should say, um, I love the parts where I could teach the children. Um, so the idea of being able to do therapy sounded really cool. And so I asked um, my mom's friend who was working at a center for individuals with developmental disabilities, um, and she mentioned ABA. I had never heard of that before. Um, and at the time, I was working towards becoming an SLP, um, or so doing my undergrad in human biology was my major and minors in linguistics and psychology. Um, so I got a part-time job doing ABA towards the end of my um, undergrad career, and then continued doing that as I became an SLP during, through doing my master's at um, the University of Buffalo. Um, and then... After graduating, I worked um, as an SLP for a while on a team that also did ABA. Um, and then um, at that point, pursued my BCBA through doing, um, at the time, you, if you had a master's in a related field and SLP was considered a related field, you could use that master's and then you had to do um, a course sequence. So it was a... Um, it was a five course sequence. My school had us do six courses. Um, was that like a semester long class or something? Um, I think they, they can be like sometimes they're each one is a semester. The way that my school did it, it was the Chicago School of Professional Psychology. I think each course was like eight weeks or something. So it, the coursework itself took about 18 months. Um, and then at the same time, you also have to do um, 1500 hours of supervised practice. Um, so you find did that, them. Oh, yeah, did, was that, sorry, was that just in ABA or did your clinical clock hours as an SLP count? Um, so it had to, I could only count it once I had started working with my supervisor and you can only start working with your supervisor once you, um, once you start the coursework. So, okay. but I, at that point I started using my hours as an SLP where I was doing ABA, I was doing sort of what we call behavioral speech language pathology. Um, but I also um, 
got a job volunteering at an IBI center. In, in Toronto, we call what, what in the literature, you'll see it as um, early intensive behavior intervention. In Toronto, we call it intensive behavior intervention. So it's um, 30 or 25 plus, uh, 25 to 40 about hours of therapy. Um, so I worked in a center that did that. I volunteered in a center doing that to get some of the hours as well. Um, because the problem with doing it only as an SLP would have been um, you have to also have experience doing behavior reduction. So that means treating maladaptive behaviors. So you have to make sure that you're in a setting where you get that experience as well. Uh-huh. Okay. So, all right. I have another question and I think it's changed. Wait, hasn't the BCBA guidelines changed now? Um, in terms of how, what you have to do to become one? Yes. Um, so for this last, I think it's been like three or four years, SLPs can no longer use their master's degree. They would have to do a separate degree in psychology or ABA, um, and plus the supervised hours. But again, in 2022, January 1st, 2022, I believe, um, they're switching it. So the SLP masters at that point will count again, but you still will have to do the five course, um, course sequence. Oh, I love that. Oh, that's not a thing. Yes. I didn't know. Oh, that's wonderful. Okay. (laughs) All right, cool. Okay. All right. So then, all right. So then my other super nerdy question is when, I mean, you're in Canada and like, I only know Asha, I don't know the other things. So when you, in your bio, you have registered CalSPO, what is that? Oh, and you know what? Did I include CCCSLP? Yes, you did. Okay, so yeah. I have that. I got the CC. <laughs> Pregnancy brain. Yeah. Exactly. Not me. I have no uterus. That's totally on her. <laughs> um, so what is, what is registered CalSPO? Um, so like in the U.S., I think in most states, you guys have licensure. Um, in Canada, I don't think in any of our provinces is there licensure. We have registration in most of our provinces, um, but it serves the same purpose as licensure. So I'm registered with the College of Audiologists and Speech-Language Pathologists of Ontario. So thank you for the crash course. Thank you for walking us through. I'm so excited about the 2022 deadlines. Um, also, folks, um, um, just some resources that I want to throw out at the beginning. Okay. The Leader Live has some amazing articles. Um, first one, Put ABA to Work. Tie Behavior to Language Goals for Kids on the Spectrum by Carrie Davis. And that was March 21st, 2013. Um, The next one that is fantastic is called, um, also in the Leader Live, it's called 10 Collaboration Tips for SLPs and Behavior Analysts Treating Students with Autism by Rosemary Griffin. And it was May 18th, 2017. And the third is the ABCs of ABA in the SLP world by Becca, Becca, I'm going to butcher this, Becca Jerzinski on February 7th, 2012. So please go check out those articles because again, they're resources about collaboration and working together and how to make it set for success. Okay. All right. So are you ready? Let's roll right in. Okay, great. Golden. Okay. Yeah. All right. So um, when we're working together, uh, with children that have autism spectrum disorders and also individuals that have intellectual disabilities, uh, we kind of um, um, approach uh, things differently and have some different terminologies. So what approaches to language assessment and interventions do ABA practitioners often use when working with these populations? Um. So as an SLP, we'll sometimes use, like if as an SLP ABA, SLP BCBA um, professional, I will sometimes take assessments from my SLP background and use them with these individuals. But often, for example, a standardized assessment um, won't give you the right information because it doesn't go into enough detail. Um, and also, it, for a lot of the individuals that I work with, it wouldn't be possible to um, administer most of the stimuli. You, you, you mean you can't get a kiddo to want to pay attention to the PLS-5? Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I digress. <laughs> um, and yeah, you know how you had to like set up all those stimuli for that test? Wow. Um, 
<laughs> so yeah. get to wait while you do that. <laughs> but um, I mean, I have used that in some cases, um, especially to get the the morphosyntax portions. Although the PLS five people have their issues with it anyway. So, but what we typically we've done that episode. We're good. <laughs> <laughs> um, so ABA professionals, like not talking now about SLP BCBAs, but BCBAs in general, will often use criteria and reference tests. Um, and the common ones used are the VB map um, and the ABLES, um, and those are all they have. Those are initials. Um, and now people are also starting to use the PEAK. So that's a PEAK. Um, that's PEAK yeah. assessment. Okay. Um, I, I can't say that that's one of my go-tos, but I'll take programs from it. I'll, I'll take some ideas from it occasionally on things that I should be targeting, but um, I haven't fully bought into the whole theory behind that one. Um, but the one that I, t- I commonly use is the VBMAP, and it's very similar to the ABLES. Um, okay, one, what is that? What is this word that you're saying? So VBMAP? It's the Verbal Behavior Milestones Assessment and Placement Program. Verbal behavior milestones. Oh, it pops right up. Cool. All right. VB map. I've never heard of this thing before in my life. Okay. Oh, WPS carries it. Of course they do. They always carry all the things. Cool. All right. I'm I'm pulling this up. Um, are BCBAs allowed to in and of themselves use this as as a test? Or like does their license give them their whatever certification they have that gives them the authority to do this. Yeah. So I'd say, yeah. So they're usually the the ones who are doing it. Sometimes SLPs will do it, but it's, they're sort of designed to be administered by, um, uh, by ABA therapists Um, with the one caveat being part of the baby map. um, It's a small part of it. It's called the EESA, um, a COEX, early ECOEX skills assessment. Um, echoics is a fancy word in ABA for saying imitation of, of speech or speech sounds. Um, like echolalia? No. Um, so it's, it's basically like how we do a motor speech test. Like, you know, the KSPT, the Kaufman speech praxis test. So, you know, in that one, how we go through and we have the child imitate various sounds and sound sequences. So the same thing, the ESA kind of does that. It doesn't go into as much detail and it's written, it's not written in IPA, um, and it's designed, it was designed by an SLP BCBA, Barb Ash, Dr. Barb Ash, who's amazing. Um, and she designed it so that it could be administered by um, ABA therapists on their own. Uh, she does mention it is best to involve an SLP for that. Um, Beautiful. And yeah. So most teams will try to, but it's still common that they will administer that without an SLP Unfortunately, I would say like you, you do need the SLP background to be able to analyze um, and figure out what's going wrong with motor speech. So that's okay. okay. I have a, I have a very direct, blunt, honest question to ask. Okay. How do you feel the community of BCBAs views SLPs? Like, do you feel as much tension within that community as I feel between the SLP community? Like, I don't think we should have a tension. I think we should work collaboratively. But do you see that on that side as well? Am I like being a negative Nancy? Yeah, no, kind of straddling both sides. I definitely see it. Um, I kind of see myths on both sides. Um, oh, that's a good way to explain it. Myths, misunderstand. Yes. Okay. So for example, you'll often hear ABA therapists saying, um, well, we're, we're really into evidence-based practice and, and SLPs are not. I don't think they realize that it's actually part of our scope of practice or SLP scope of practice as well to look at the evidence. Um, so I, I'd say that's one of the myths. Um, and there's often just egos. So I don't need to involve this other person because I know it. Um, I almost snorted water out my nose. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but I think both sides um, at, at the leadership level, they are trying to establish collaboration. And like you said, there's those resources that you mentioned that I, I think they're about collaboration. And there's been a whole bunch. Yes, they are. Yeah. Um, there's another book called ABA for SLPs that recently came out in 2019. Um, one Wait, of I'm going to pull that up. <laughs> Dr. Muriel, Muriel Koenig. I never say her name right. I've always 
loved her work, but I don't know how to say her name. Um, her last name is K O E N I G. Um, and there's always like presentations on it and that kind of thing. Nice. Yes. Okay. You, you can find it right there on, on the Amazon. Yeah. Bless the Amazon. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. Sorry. That was, that was a very big impassioned squirrel because <laughs> I'm, I have honestly seen some, unfortunately, like one whole company in town that if they did not have a fish and tackle box full of junk food, I don't think that they would ever be able to say that they have met their goals. I had one of, okay, this is bad. One of my, um, one of my patients, the ABA therapist looked me dead in the face and said, we taught him a four word utterance. I said, you taught him to say, I have orange cat. He doesn't even have a cat. (laughs) And they were like, it's a four word utterance. I was like, how is that functional? Afterwards, the mom was like, so Michelle, you got a suggestion. I was like, have I told you about my friend, Sarah? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. All right. Continue. All right. So the VBAP, VB map, and I love that they put in there, use this with an SLP. Okay. So this is one of the assessments. Okay, cool. I have found it. Mark Sunderg. Sunberg, Sunberg. Yeah. Yes. Okay. He's the, the author of the test. Okay. Yeah. And he had previously authored another test called the ABLES, A-B-L-L-S, um, Assessment of Basic Language and Learning Skills. Um, he had done that with a partner, um, Partington, Dr. Partington. Um, so then he, Sunberg, that later um, took a lot of what he had from the ABLES and then made the VB map from that, where the thinking is that the VB map is a little bit more um, sequenced um, according to age of acquisition. Um, I think the ABLES is quite a bit too. I think the difference, I think the reason people think the VB map is much better sequenced is because it's divided into three levels. So it gives you the idea that because there's various domains that are assessed. So there's requesting skills and labeling skills and answering questions sort of skills. So if you don't have say your labeling skills at level one yet, you're not going to go into level two and start your intraverbal. So you're answering questions sort of skills. So I, I think that's why people like the VBMAP better in terms of its sequence. Um, but they are very similar, the ABLES versus the VBMAP. Nice. Okay. All right. So those are, and those are the most common. Mm-hmm. Okay. With the PTR becoming more common, it's based on um, the idea of, this, this term called equivalence um, theory um, and relational frame theory. Um, so part of it is based on the idea that you can improve a person's cognitive skills. Um, if you teach them, for example, if you let's see if I can get this right. Um, if you see a word, <laughs> see the word C-A-T and you learn to label it as cat and you also know how to label a picture of a cat as a cat, now you don't need the extra training, hopefully, to learn that the picture of the cat matches the CAT because equivalence, um, your equivalence skills will allow you to learn that extra piece. So Peak sort of tries to um, capitalize on that. The first couple of books of Peak are more like the VB map, and then they go into this extra stuff. This is super detailed. And there I am throwing myself on the floor doing narrative talk, like narrative and expansion talk in the moment. I understand why that may not come across as evidence-based when I'm laying on the floor wailing, I am mad next to the kid who is mad when you're like super, okay, I can understand why there could be this misunderstandings, but I... Yeah, the, I personally wouldn't be able to attend to the detail because ADD would inhibit <laughs> that level of specifics. But okay, I see where they're coming from. So go team. But okay, so is that some of the approaches? So those would be the assessment to the the approaches to assessment, and then like those only cover skills. For example, the VB map goes up to a typically developing child at age four. Um, so once you get and, and really like it doesn't go very deeply into things like morphosyntax. Um, so world. Yeah, yeah. Once you get a child who is more at that um, intermediate or advanced language levels. Um, so, you know, they're, they're speaking like a three-year-old or a four-year-old. It helps them to bring in the SLP sort of language test, I would say. Yeah. Well, I, I have to be honest. I really struggle with, um, uh, 
utilizing a, a comprehensive language test because the children that I personally treat tend to be um, so, their deficits tend to be so profound. Right. And often they have like an underlying cortical vision impairment uh, or they um, they may have an underlying hearing loss. And the standardized assessments just don't fulfill their needs. So I really, I really use the Rosetti a lot. And I know it goes for birth to three. I think it's criterion is the technical yeah, term. Yeah, referenced like yes. the baby map. Yeah. Yes. And I love that. But I even use it for my children that are five, but they're functioning like a 15-month-old because then it helps me quantify what it is that I'm seeing and what would be the next trajectory towards um, plan of care development. You right. know? So just just as a – yeah. Hmm. Yeah, and like we learn in school um... – the criterion reference tests are, are a little bit better for helping to actually plant therapy or a standardized test. Even a lot of the things that they include are not necessarily things you would teach. They're just there to differentiate somebody who has a disorder from someone who doesn't. So they're not as helpful with planning. Whereas these tests go into detail about what needs to be learned. Yes. Yes. Okay. All right. So I'm looking at our time and we have like four more questions to get through. <laughs> I don't want to, you know, lost in the weeds here. So, okay. All right. So as both of us, and you're like on this unique little island where you're both SLP and ABA, but often SLPs and ABA practitioners, we work on the same skills, but we use different terminology. And, you know, I'm okay when I'm like, I don't have a freaking clue what you said. Can you translate it? But a lot of people are, and it's taken me a long time to get there, but a lot of people are not as comfortable with that. So can you give us the terms and how they, like the BCBA world terms and how they correlate to the SLP world, please? Yeah. And I think that's important for collaboration because I think once we realize a lot of our terms really they're different, but they mean the same things. We realize, oh, okay, we are trying to work on the same thing. So, um, Dr. B.F. Skinner in 1957 wrote his book called Verbal Behavior, where he went into what he called verbal operants. Um, now, that's not unique to ABA. It actually, we have it in SLP as well. We call them functions of communication um, or um, speech acts. Elizabeth Bates, who was a psychologist way back when in the, I don't know, 60s, um, she came up with the, the word speech acts. And you can sometimes see that in the SLP literature. So she talks about um, requesting um, and naming. I don't know if she calls it labeling. Anyway, so we have the same things in ABA. The verbal operants in ABA are manding. So that's requesting. I've heard that term a lot, manding. Yes. Um, tacting is labeling um, or naming. Um and then there's the word intraverbals, which refers to re responding to anything that someone else has said or potentially like another person's gesture by doing something else, like um, saying something else or, or producing a gesture. So responding with something else that is um, a communicative act. Um, most like conversational turn taking pretty much. Well, it's basically it's like the most common form of intraverbals would be responding to a question. Um, and so, yeah, like within a conversation, we're using introverbals all the time. We might respond to a question. We might might also take um, non-obligatory turns, which would mean responding to someone else's comment. That would also be an introverbal, or a filling a fill in. So, like I, um, if you say to a child, um, "You wear shoes," and the child answers "socks," that would be an introverbal response. Sentence close. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, That's what I'm thinking of. Like, yeah, like, sorry, we're talking at the same time, but like, yes, <laughs> SLPs. <laughs> but like, so like, that's what I think of as like a sentence close. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then the other terms that Skinner came up with are not things that necessarily correlate exactly to what we would say, like textual means reading. Um, but then he goes into a bunch of other ones that don't correlate so much with, with words that we would use. Um, and then there's also the word motivational operation. Um, which means basically motivation, um, so the desire to have something. In SLP, we use the word communicative temptation. Pretty much means the same thing. Okay. Desired object action. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm just in my, you, what you can't see is me going through like a plan of care for a kid in my head and like how I would write the plan of care and like what language I'm using that would be on like 
What it would have okay, what does a BCBA write? Do they write a plan of care? What, what yeah, is it's often about? called an intervention plan or a behavior intervention plan. Yeah, those are the common terms for them. Okay. All right. You have we have more questions, but I have to chase the squirrel for a second. What does what does it actually look like? Like I know that there's a BCBA and then there's a lead therapist and then there's a line therapist. And sometimes in the States, like when you can't find a line therapist, like a family will like, like a family member can get paid to be a line therapist. But like, what is the training like between all of these different people and help? Can you just kind of like streamline that for me? Yeah, so what you're calling a line therapist, and we don't use that term in, in Canada, I don't think, but like it means um, the person who's delivering the therapy. Um, so in the last, I'd say like three years, the BACB started credentialing um, that level of therapist, or we shouldn't use the word therapist, a technician, that level of technician as a registered behavior technician. So they have 40 hours of online training, um, like video, watching videos and that sort of thing. Um and then they have to have an a BCBA sign off um, on various things that they've they've done correctly, and then they sit for an exam and they they get that credential. Um, they have to work under the supervision of either a BCBA or a BCABA. And is then, that does that transcend different countries? Is that just like what's set up by like like the overriding BCBA board? What is that board called or what is that association called? Um, BACB, Behavior Analyst Certification Board. Um, does it transcend different countries? So the BACB used to credential people in internationally. They stopped as of a few months ago. I think now you either have to be in the US or Canada and maybe one other place to use to credential with them. Um, but like the idea of this hierarchical sort of organization, yeah, that seems to be how it, it it's used across countries. Um, unless like sometimes parents, for example, just want some consultation um, around how to handle something. So how to handle a, metal, a, bleh, a maladaptive behavior. Um, and so they might hire just a BCBA to give, but in order to carry out these intensive programs that are 10 hours plus and often 25 hours plus you need those um, junior level behavior technicians. Okay. So you have the 40 hour training. Okay. So here in the States, we have the line therapist, what that sounds like, but then we have like a lead therapist who's like, like a middle level where they've had some like additional skills or maybe like promoted within. Do you have that? In Canada? Some teams do like in my practice, I don't have that. Um, although I'll have sometimes a more seasoned person who might take a little bit more of a role on the team um, in, in providing leadership, but you don't necessarily have to have that person called a lead. Um, and there's nothing that designates them educational wise or anything. Um, and what I should also mention about the, the 40 hour level person in Canada or in Ontario, um, we also have um, college programs. And when I say college, we mean in Canada, we mean community college. So we have community college programs that are a year to two years long that a lot of these people come out of. So it's it's more than just the 40 hours. Um, That's awesome. Yeah, I think. In is the, it covered by insurance? I know y'all's insurance is way different than ours, but does insurance pay for this service? Mostly not. Um, the only time you can have it covered by insurance is if you have um, coverage for psychological services and your team happens to be supervised by a psychologist. Then I think you can get some of your hours covered that way, but not so many anyway. Um, Who pays for it? Yeah, that's a big problem here. Um, so in Ontario, since 2000-ish, like I think 2002, um, the ministry has paid for it for a select group of kids. It was um, initially supposed to be for younger kids. Um, and then that was a thought about it. And it, we keep going back and forth. Um, so the Ministry of Children and Youth Services funds it for some kids. For other kids, and it's a huge number, there isn't funding. So either parents are paying for it or it's not happening. Aye. Yeah. Aye. Big problem. So, okay. Yeah. So um, in the States, it's it's incredibly controversial and they didn't used to have to have um, a license or any, it wasn't really regulated. It was kind of like a free for all. So like everybody was taking the class and then calling themselves an ABA like therapist and they used the term therapist, which is scope of practice encroachment and lawsuits and blah, because like terminology. Um, and in South Carolina, because states rights it, it is what it is. Um, they 
in order to clean it up because they had so many people saying that they were doing ABA therapy, but they were not, um, and they were getting reimbursed. They went through and shored it up that you could only, um, do it if you had a, um, uh, a BCBA with the training leading it. And then, and it jumped our wait list. Like, I think our wait list is like 5,000 kids in the state alone. Um, and, it, but by doing that, they did, um, cover it within our birth to three population it's paid for and certain insurances will pay for it. Some insurances don't. However, our state is the lowest reimbursement rate for ABA therapy in the country, um, because deep South issues, right? So, um, an hour of ABA therapy, I think the reimbursement rate is like 54 bucks an hour and it, for, you know, what I've heard from a lot of the BCBAs that I love and adore, they say that that doesn't even begin to cover the cost of the insurance, the like paying for these people to actually even get in the home and covering the cost of their training because there's such a high turnover rate um, because the like their pay scale is so like what they actually get paid per hour is so low. Um and if you go across the state's lines, like in North Carolina, the reimbursement's like double plus. I mean, I think it's like 120 to 130 an hour. It's like 119 to like 130 an hour. Wow. So, um, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, here's the ministry. Um, the ministry allows us to, to charge up to 55 per hour. So sounds similar to you. And I can tell you running a practice with trying to make that work is very, very hard. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you don't want to talk about, nobody wants to talk about the nuts and the bolts, but like, it's, this is a service that when done collaboratively and we work together, it can be a beautiful thing, but we have to be able to pay people and we have to be able to attract people into wanting to go into doing this collaboratively, but you got to have a livable wage. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. <laughs> we, we squirreled a lot, but there was, there was a lot to cover there. Okay. All right. So to get us back on track, dun, dun, dun. Did we cover all the terms that you wanted to cover? I think so. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. All right. So theories of language acquisition, dun, dun, dun. It provides the rationale for the assessment and treatment. Right. Um, but talk to us about the theory of language acquisition, because I'll be honest, my myth um, because I've had so many BCBAs tell me it's all behavioral. And I'm like, well, a behavior occurs because of lack of language, right? Or a source of frustration. So I feel like for some of these folks, like I have just talked in circles where I'm like, yes, I understand they have a maladaptive behavior uh, and it needs to be distinguished. However, it's because they're you know, the kid's angry that they don't want a goldfish, right? And you haven't given them a core vocab word for different. So impassioned moment, but um, talk to us about theory. <laughs> okay. Um, so when behave, when, when ABA practitioners are saying that language is behavioral, what they mean is it, it's a behavior that can be changed through modifying the environment, through modifying consequences and um, putting various stimuli in place. Um, and that comes from, well, I guess it kind of comes from Skinner, who said that um, language is a be an operant behavior, just like any other behavior that can be changed that way. And that's kind of what the behavioral or the behaviorist theory of language acquisition says. It says that kids or babies... Um, begin to use certain sounds or words, and then they either have a consequence within themselves called, called automatic reinforcement, like it feels good to them that they just said a word that sounds like their mom, or they said it in the same um, sort of intonation as mom, so it feels good to them, so they'll continue it. Um, or um, someone else in the environment praised them or gave them some sort of reward that made them want to perform that behavior again in the future. And when I say reward, I don't mean like here have a cookie, but just some some positive event happened created by another person, and it happened. Swinging in a blanket. Sorry, that's the when you say reward. That's one of the ones I have tossed so many kiddos in a blanket, and they want to play again and again and again. Or like they really like when you know we. And I know that it can correlate to stimming, which I have so many questions about. We might need to do a part two just on that. But um, yeah, okay. Go ahead. Sorry, I got excited. <laughs> <laughs> so according to behavioral theory, all language is learned that way. But we all know from school that um, there's other theories. And, and SLP that, school, not BCBA school. Sorry, SLP school. <laughs> yeah, yeah, other school. <laughs> First school for me. Um, that um, 
when you do experiments, you see that probably the behavioral theory is not enough to cover um, most of what happens in, la- in language learning. Because, for example, nobody's correcting a kid's grammar when they're three, but somehow they do learn to produce plurals properly for some reason. Um, so now Skinner might say it's through automatic reinforcement, but who knows? Nobody knows. Um, the other kinds of the other two theories, the nativist theory, the interactionist theory, there's always experiments that show that they might be right too. But I think really the jury is still out on how language is learned. That's coming out of my language acquisition class in undergrad. Basically, my understanding was we just don't know how language is really learned. And it's really cool that kids somehow pick it up. Um, but it's beautiful because for some kids, it's so different. I mean, think if if you don't just look at your children that have autism spectrum disorders, look at your kiddos that have had perinatal CBAs. Look, I have one little one that I'm working with that has excessive folds of her cortical structures. And like somehow we're still picking up language. It's just, it's beautiful. Hmm. Yeah. Um, Yeah, yeah, exactly. So what I, my take on it is we don't know in typical language acquisition, how it happens. And we don't know that the behavioral theory properly explains that, but we do know that the behavioral theory gives us a really good framework on how to teach it when it's not otherwise being learned. Um, and so I'm happy to have learned that theory. <laughs> um, and, and the, the, the approaches that come out of it. Yeah. Okay. All right. So then, all right. So when this gets into like treatment, All right. So when I go in and I go to set up um, a speech generating device, because normally if I get called in for a kiddo that has autism spectrum disorders and they've had a bunch of other SLPs before me and they've got BCBAs on board, normally I walk in the door and I can guarantee I'm going to see a folder, um, a three ring binder with plastic pages with, I don't know, anywhere from 30 to 500 different pictures laminated and Velcroed down. And they've created like for a not a true PEC stage, but like basically like a picture exchange communication system, not like the branded one, but just they've basically taken pictures of like all the kids' favorite foods and their favorite toys and shoved them in a book. And they're calling that and it's and it's all fringe vocab, right? And then I come in and I'm like, but there's no core. So like if they want something that's different, if they want to tell you that something hurts, if they want to tell you no, like none of that's in here. I get really frustrated, right? Um, and again, then I have worked with the amazing BCBAs who are like, hey, what you doing? And let's collaboratively implement like LAMP or whatever communication device I'm bringing with me, right? So help me understand the difference in their viewpoints on, B- on core vocab. Yeah. Um, so when it comes to AAC, for a BCBA or for in the ABA approach, the first thing we want to do, and I think this is, Typically, also what we want to do in, a, in you know general SLP AAC world is we want to give the per- the child uh, or the person I should say a way to request um, in order to get their basic needs and um, immediate desires met. Um, and so we do have in mind the idea that eventually we want this person talking in sentences and being able to um, produce an, some two word utterances before we get to sentences and that sort of thing. So we need core vocab, but we're a little bit more, I'd say, systematic um, in in how we get to that point. Um, one kind of difference, I think, in, in philosophy between an SLP or SLP world and ABA world is um, you often hear SLPs talking about like when they're doing core vocab sorts of things. They want to expose the child to lots of vocab, lots of including the core vocabulary. Um, whereas um, in the ABA approach we're very big on teaching to mastery. So we don't want to just kind of show a child a word. And I, I sometimes hear people talking about like the core word of the week. So we don't want to just teach a word for the week and then move on. We want to move on once we have it established, like once their child has really learned it. So that's one thing, um, one kind of difference in the philosophy. Um, also an issue with core vocab um, is that a lot of them are, are generalized, what we call generalized mans or generalized requests. So for example, the word more, um, it can serve. Oh, I hate that word. <laughs> Sorry. Or the word it. <laughs> um, it. They can be used to request so many different things, but it 
makes it hard to teach first the specific word. And if you don't teach the specific word, then like the child comes to you and says more and you're like, more, more what? Um, Mm -hmm. So that's one reason we stay away from most of the core early on. Um, And then there's the... Which is completely the opposite of what SLPs do. We hit the core first because in our research, we show that the core vocab like up, down, in, out. If you start with, I I think, honestly, I think it boils down to the word within the core word that's chosen because there are more generic ones that are in the first 100 core vocabulary words that I don't start with because they're too abstract. I mean, if you think about it, language in and of itself is very abstract. So if you start with an abstract word, you're not going to have success. We need something that's concrete. Um, I normally start with um, go or eat, honestly, go, because a lot of my little ones that have ASD, they really like to go um, or to be pushed or um, um, they want in, like, I'm sorry, I'm thinking of an activity that I do where I put the tiny human in the laundry basket and then I put like something weighted on top of them. And then I like run down the hallway, pushing them in the laundry basket, but then they have their speech generating device in their laptop, like in their lap. And so if they want to go, then you got to tell me go. And then we do ready, set, go. I'm signing while I'm talking, Sari. Like I'm like, <laughs> all the cues. Sorry. All right. Continue with the theory. Sorry. Go, go, go. <laughs> but with a word like go, we probably would do pretty close to the beginning because it's we, once we have some nouns established, we do want, also want to move on to verbs. Verbs are just a, a little bit harder to create the motivation for them. But like, yeah, that kind of activity, like I might teach push or go, um, like the one you described. Um, and then coming back to the idea of, well, in typical development, they, these words are learned first. So there's actually like people questioning that recently. Um, Light and I don't know if I'm going to say her name right, Laubscher. This was like a couple of months ago that their study come up, came out. So they compared core vocab lists to um, what kids actually say at various ages. And to quote from their conclusion, they said, results suggest that core word lists may underemphasize many of the types of words that predominate in early expressive vocabulary. These lists may not be most appropriate resources to guide AAC system design and instruction for early symbolic communicators. Um, and what some other people have, other research has been showing is um, the core vocab lists that have come out are based on what kids are saying at about age two. Um, whereas the kids that we're talking about are early learners or, or early communicators are at a much lower, like even if they are that age chronologically, their developmental level isn't, isn't there. So like 12 months, 15 months. Yeah. Or even, even lower yeah. sometimes. Right. So, so yeah. I think there's that sort of, maybe myth, or I don't think we're quite there in knowing exactly what early words are, but there seems to be a misunderstanding that kids start with these core words where maybe that's not quite quite right. Um, I've always thought we start with prepositions. Like really, I mean, a lot of kids start with um, up, out, in, and I've seen that missed a lot. Um like when I go in and cause I mean, how many times do they get up in a high chair? Do they get in their car seat? Do they get in the tub? They get up on the changing table. Um, they want mommy to pick me up, um, and down. Um, gravity is the greatest toy that I think the good Lord ever gave us because how many of our kiddos just love to throw something down to see the, yeah. Right. <laughs> oh, we have, yes. How many times have I scrubbed my kitchen floors because of the gravity game? <laughs> All right, continue. Sorry, I just had a couple thoughts. Yes. Right? Um, now, I think up, like we often would teach that as one of our first words, but we're thinking of it, I would almost think of it more as a fringe word. Like the child probably isn't learning up means I get raised to a higher vertical level. To them, it's like up means mommy's holding me. So who knows? Like, is it a cool oh, word? Or is it a neat word? take on it. Yeah. I hadn't thought of it like that. Okay. Okay. Okay, so what about what about aided language stimulation? Um, oh, sorry. So there's one more thing I should say about the the core words. Um, the PECs, the, the people who develop PECs, they have a couple of videos that they've produced that do a really good job of explaining why they don't recommend doing core right away, but also emphasizing that we do want to get there. Um, so sorry, yeah. So 
over to aided language stimulation. Um, oh no! Wait. Okay, sorry, squirrel. A full disclosure: I am not a fan of their approach. Like, oh really? Honestly. Yes, because I have had, um, because I've had the um, one because when I be, when I wear my AAC hat and I chase the SLP literature, uh, it does focus so much on fringe where. I don't, I don't see that happening. Like kid can't get their point across it within the school settings. Okay. Backstory. When I get called in, sometimes I get called in to be an advocate with meetings with the school districts and some of the school districts have an unspoken rule, which is a violation of the communication bill of rights. that said a child has to reach level six B before they will consider a speech generating device. Well, that's incredibly high on the PECs. Also, that's a violation of the Communication Bill of Rights. So when I've seen PECs used, I've never seen it done how I think it was originally designed. I've always seen it kind of um, maybe misrepresented is the right word to say. You know what I mean? Right. And so like that's that's not appropriate. Like you're supposed to have the opportunity to use whatever means necessary to have access to communication. And so when I have asked the school districts, okay, so where is that policy in writing? Because I know that it's breaking law. They're like, oh, well, then we'll go ahead and make the referral to the AAC team today. I was like, yes, I would huh. appreciate that. So like, it's very frustrating. I'm, I'm punching the table. I'm like racking my hand <laughs> by the table. Like, <laughs> but like, but that's just because I've seen it done wrong. Right. So like my emotional baggage, like, you know, people, I'm admitting my disclosures here. <laughs> okay. All right. So we have like four minutes. So aided language stimulation. <laughs> yeah. Part of the aided language stimulation issue kind of gets back to that idea of like the exposure versus teaching to mastery. So if we're kind of like modeling a whole bunch of stuff and hoping the child is getting it. In ABA, that kind of doesn't go with with the with that philosophy of we want to make sure the child is really learning what we're teaching them. Um, also, um, just thinking about the learners we're working with, they usually don't have the prerequisite skills. And now this is not based on evidence, although I'll go, I'll get into some research quickly in a second. But um, in order to benefit from aided language stimulation, you need to be able to observe or to attend to what someone is modeling for you. Most of our kids early on aren't so great at observing what someone else is doing. Um, you need to be able to imitate what they're doing and not just imitate in the moment, but imitate it later under the right circumstances. Um, and so both of those are really difficult for our kiddos. Um then some people will say, no, but there's great research showing aided language stimulation is the way to go. And then when you actually look at it, um, this is another study by Light, so O'Neill, Light, and Pope. Um, they did, a, yeah, it was a meta-analysis, um, and they looked at 21 single subject designs um, that used um, aided language stimulation plus other stuff, uh, like other approaches, um, but they also looked at just five single su single subject designs um, that use just aided language stimulation, um, and so that shows like when they're they had really good effects that they saw, but we don't know how much of that is because other approaches were being used. Um, and then there's the relevance to the population. I think that we have to consider. They found um, that the effect sizes were not as high for adults, probably adults with more significant delays um, and not as, um, the, again, the effect size were not as good for individuals in the earliest stages of language development. So again, the, the kinds of clients that we're talking about. Um, also, this quality of the research, they found that of the 28 studies that they looked at, only 15 um, met the highest standards. Um, what else can I say? Uh, one of the things that bothered me when I was looking at the studies were a lot of people were taking data on the number of communicative turns that someone was taking, that the learner was taking, but not necessarily on whether they were using vocab that was accurate. So maybe they're pressing buttons, but are they really getting their message across? And is it ethical for us to be working on that if they're not getting their message across? Um, and what else? Yeah, so that those are basically my concerns about aided language stimulation. It's not that I'll never model something, but um, most of what I like to do when I'm doing AAC and, and my, my colleagues who are um, SLP, BCBAs, um, we're trying to make sure that the child is getting lots of opportunities to use 
um, their device and, and perform the skills that we're trying to get them to learn and to get rewarded for doing so, so that they'll do more of that in the future. Okay. With our final two minutes, I have often wondered, because I'm not a BCBA, I have often wondered, um, and I'm, I don't know how to sugarcoat because I'm tired <laughs> because I was painting all day long. Like, really, truthfully, my shoulder's, like, killing me. But, like, my trim looks really good, people. The trim looks really good. Um, is this something, like, I feel very strongly that if you're going to treat pediatric feeding and swallowing disorders, everybody should go get their CLC, especially if you're going to work with infants, right? Because there is information in that wheelhouse that is has made me a better speech pathologist, right? Do you feel that way about your BCBA certification? Do you feel that that's made you a better or a different speech pathologist? You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, I would say so, particularly for the children and, and adults with more severe delays. Um, it hasn't helped so much, for example, with teaching morphosyntax and that sort of thing. Like that we really need to rely on our linguistics backgrounds and our SLP training for that. But for knowing how to break down a task and how to keep somebody motivated, um, that's a big thing in ABA. We want to make sure our learners are like super having fun. Um, and I, I feel like I took most of that from my ABA training. Um but that's what that's what I want to know because I feel like I feel like if we were to actually and Asha has such such a big push for interprofessional education to yield better interprofessional practice. Y'all think of this hour as interprofessional education. That's what Sari did. She taught us about the blend between SLPs and um, BCBAs, and that's amazing. So then we can take that info away and then actually collaborate better, right? Like that's the end goal because we are both professions that are here to help kids and adults. But like we typically think of this as like a tiny human form, right? Um, right. Tiny humans. I'm just thinking of my um, older special needs brother. He's not so tiny. He's really, really tall. <laughs> he actually, sorry, I don't know if you know, my um, older brother has um, autism. Um, he's my brother-in-law, but he has autism and CP and a couple things. So like, you know, as you're talking, I'm thinking about Uncle Matthew Monster and like, you know, what all that looks like as an adult. Right. Um, but yeah. Okay. So you, um, you're brave. Like, honestly, like this is something that's such a controversial topic, but to like reach out and say, Hey, we can do this and we can, um, build a bridge and we can make people from both sides hear it, speak it and like work collaboratively. Like that takes guts and gumption. So thank you. Like, I am really, really grateful for what you do for the tiny humans that you work with, but like also for our field, because I think when it's done right, we can, we can do good things, you know? Yeah, okay. Yeah. All right. So if someone, um, listening is more, in, is interested, is more interested, how, how do you like that talking, <laughs> um, is interested in learning more about how to be a BCBA, what would you recommend that they go check out? Um, the BACB.com, their website explains how to become a BCBA and it'll okay. go into the fact that it's changing in 2022 and that sort of thing. Also, it's driving me crazy that their website is BABC when technically you get your BCBA. I'm just saying that that's <laughs> like confusing. making <laughs> It's like those of us that have some OCD tendencies, why that letters are not sequential, like alphabetically ordered, does bother me. <laughs> um, as do cabinets being slightly cracked open and sort of perfectly closed. But right. That's a conversation <laughs> for another day. Okay. All right. So if someone has a question for you, how can they best reach you? Um, so I can give you my website address. Should I list it? Should I provide yes, it? Yes. Give us, yeah, um, give us, give us your website. www.actionpotentialservices.ca. Perfect. Okay, www.actionpotentialservices.ca. .ca. Okay, perfect. All right, hold the line really quick, and I'm going to switch this over to questions, okay? Okay, thanks a lot. Right, hang on. Absolutely. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The Alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, 
advocacy, and research. So who is the Alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Bye.